you because you are holy, holy, holy. And we see that in the lesson, how your holiness is over all that even though man has sins and we see the explosion of sin in human history, you are holy and you are the judge and your plans and your purposes rule. Be with us today. We ask that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law, that you would teach us from your word and we would walk in your ways, being hearers and doers of your word. And Lord, we also, in thinking of the study and studying the evil that pervaded the world, we saw great evil in Las Vegas in the shooting, and we want to pray for our nation. We pray that you would be with the people who lost loved ones, that you would be with those who are injured, and that you would help the church in Las Vegas to reach these hurting people with the hope of the gospel. There is rarely a time as ripe as when people are desperate and needing as they are in the situation. Let the gospel go forth in a powerful way, and your hope be brought to these people in this loss. And we pray that all of this in your son's name. Amen. This morning, we are going to be covering familiar territory. If you have grown up in the church, you have heard the stories of Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, and even if you haven't, almost everyone is familiar with Noah's Ark, right? It's just, we see the cute little kids' displays and toys all over Noah's Ark. They're kind of missing the point there, but we're all familiar with the stories. Yet today, I hope as we go through this that we will see something new. Maybe you're like me. Before I studied this, I didn't really understand how each of these stories connected. I didn't understand how they related to each other. And I'll be honest, I had a couple of times when I thought, when I'd read Genesis 5 or 10, would we really lose a whole lot if it wasn't in Scripture? But we would. And I hope that today we can tie all the connection, tie it all together, see the thread of redemptive history through it all, and we'll see something new even though we're in something that's so familiar. We'll see that this is more than just you know, a moral story to teach in our Sunday school lessons, but it's really pushing the redemptive line forward. Two years ago, when I studied this at our church in California, my best friend taught this lesson, um, one of my best friends, and she pointed out a pattern to the story that I'm just going to take right from her. I'd never noticed it before, but she noticed that in each of the narratives, there is man's sin, then there is God's holiness, and he's a judge, God's holiness and justice, and then God's mercy. Man's sin, God's holiness and justice, and God's mercy. So as we look at the lesson today, our outline is going to look something like this. The title would be The Explosion of Sin in the World, and we're going to look at Cain and Abel, but then we're going to see man's sin, God's holiness, and God's mercy. Then we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, point two, sorry, the flood, point two, and we'll see again sin, God's holiness, and judgment, and then we're going to look at the Tower of Babel and see again man's sin, God's holiness, and God's mercy. So that pattern is going to repeat in each narrative, and we're just going to look at those main stories as our main points today. As we start, I think it's helpful, what is God's holiness? To have a few definitions for these things. <laughs> what is God's holiness? God's holiness is that God is morally pure and perfect without any defect or error in his actions, attitudes, and behaviors. God is morally pure and perfect without any defect or error in his actions, attitudes, and behavior. God is just, and therefore he will act justly. Sometimes we say, because God, you know, God is holy, he has to do that. God is just, he is perfect justice. Nothing acts outside of God to make him do something, but because he is justice, he will judge sin. It's because of who he is that he acts in judgment on sin. And then God's mercy. God's mercy, I took this from A.W. Tozer. It says, as God's judgment is God's justice confronting moral inequity, so his mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. 
His mercy is the goodness of God confronting human suffering and guilt. And I love that definition because of how it applies. I mean, we just see human suffering and guilt all over the pages of Genesis 4 through 11. But his mercy is his goodness confronting that. And we'll see that today. Some of you also might have had, maybe I'm the only one who wonders these things about the Lord's plan, but I'm thinking some of you maybe have some of the same questions that I do. And one question I always ask is, why didn't God fix it faster? Why have redemptive history at all? Why not just fix it? Why don't we get sanctified immediately? And there is an aspect of mystery to this. Scripture never just says, and this is why, in a verse, clearly. But it does tell us a few things that help answer this question. One is that we know that God is in control, and he's perfectly sovereign and perfectly good, and he does what is best. So we can know that even though we might want everything to be fixed immediately, this is best because we trust his character. But another reason, as I was studying this, a couple of the men that I studied and listened to addressed this question. I'm just going to share their answers with you. And one said that because of the fall, um, we tend to put ourselves in the center of the story. We tend to make it about us. And we want to be fixed, and we want our problems solved. But scripture and God's story is first of all about God. So Abner Chow says this, God has a plan to show the fullness of all the reign of God and, God's, and the glory of God. So he wants to show all the reign of God and all of his glory. And God the Father is creating a world where the Son is the hero. And he delights in his Son being the hero all the way through. Remember we said scripture is one story. It's one book. And every story, for the most part, as an English major, you have the hero, right? The, the, who is the story about? And it's about Christ. And God is making much of his son in redemptive history and in having it all play out. All of his glory, all of his reign to make much of his son. And then Von Robert says in his book, God's Big Picture, he speaks of, he's talking about the Apostle Paul and he says, Paul stresses in Ephesians 1 that this is why God decided to rescue the world. For the praise of his glorious grace and for the praise of his glory for the praise of his glorious grace and for the praise of his glory. His motivation is not first and foremost to make us happy, although that is certainly one result. Above all, he was concerned for his name. It sounds dreadfully egotistical to us, but there is nothing selfish about it. In wanting his world to praise him, God is not looking for an ego boost. He is rather seeking to restore things to the way they should be. He is seeking to restore things to the way that they should be. So one reason that we aren't instantly fixed is because it isn't about us. It's about God and his plan and making much of his son. So as you turn your Bibles to Genesis 4, I'm just going to review a little bit of what we looked at last week. We saw, remember, the kingdom lost. We've been talking about the kingdom and how we see that in the pages of Scripture, and it was God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So we see God's people, Adam and Eve, kicked out of God's place, the Garden of Eden, because they rejected his rule and blessing. But God does not leave us without hope. God does, he promises the serpent crusher, right? He promises that one will come who will restore paradise, who will crush the serpent. And that's where we, we left off the story, essentially, that the whole world, Adam and Eve, are waiting for the serpent crusher. And they're waiting for one who is going to restore what happens, what, restore paradise, excuse me. So our goal today is, as we look at this, is to see the sinfulness of man contrasted with the hope that God gives, right? So just like Genesis 3 ended with the sin, Adam and Eve's sin, but the hope of the serpent crusher, we're going to see that continuing on in Genesis 4 through 11. Man is sinful, but God gives, <clears throat> excuse me, hope. So read with me in Genesis, we're on point one now, Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, 
and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This phrase, I have gotten a man, can also be translated, I have acquired, that is the Lord. I have acquired, that is the Lord. And we talked about this in the lesson. She is expecting that Cain could be the seed, that Cain could be the promised one. She doesn't know, but she is hoping that this is the Redeemer. And right away, I think we see how devastating sin is. Instead of him being the serpent crusher, he's going to align, right, with the serpent. And the first death, sin is new in the world, right? Adam and Eve are going to die, but no one's died yet. No, and the first death is going to be her son at the hand of the son she was hoping would be the serpent crusher. I mean, if you how, think of the hopes and dreams that you have for your children or your grandchildren, or maybe you don't have children, but children are people you love. And none of them, <laughs> Eve's hoping he's the serpent crusher. She has real hope. And she sees instead the great consequences and pervasiveness of sin. So we're getting a little head to the end. We see that Cain and Abel both offer offerings, and Cain's is unacceptable. And God comes down and he warns him. We look in verse 6, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So remember we talked last week about the theology of God's word. Here is God's word, God's command. He is coming down and he is warning Cain. This is God's word. Resist sin. And Cain rejects the word of the Lord, right? He rejects God's warning. And there's an application in this for all of us that we too need to heed the word of the Lord. God came and spoke to Cain. We have his word here. If we want to resist sin, if we want to fight against sin in our life, if we want to have spiritual victory, we have to be women of the word women who memorize, meditate, immerse ourselves, and study in the word. That is our defense. This is where God speaks to us, and that is where we can win the battle against sin. Through the Holy Spirit's indwelling and empowering for us to understand this, we don't do it in our own strength. We have to be in the word. We have to heed it and learn from Cain's example of not heeding it. So Cain ignores God's warning. I mean, don't you just think God was speaking to you? You could have just looked to him and said, help me. But he ignores God, and he kills his brother, and God punishes him. And what we see here, besides just two brothers having conflict, is that, remember we said we're going to start looking for the attack of the seed of the serpent against the seed of the woman. We said that there's now this spiritual conflict that's going to be throughout the pages of history, that the seed of the serpent is always trying to destroy the seed of the woman. He's not going to succeed, but he's going to try. And so here we have Satan trying to destroy the seed. How? There's only two men that are descendants, right, of, of Eve right now. We've got Abel, whose offering was acceptable. We have Cain, whose offering wasn't. So you get Cain to kill Abel, and now we don't have a righteous seed. So Satan's thinking this is an effective plan. And we know that Cain is a seed of the serpent from 1 John 3.12. We looked at that in our lesson. It says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then we saw in Jude 11, woe to them for they walked in the way of Cain. They walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So Cain has aligned himself um, with the serpent and, and, and this is an attack on the seed. But that's not where the story ends, is it? You know, it doesn't end, he doesn't succeed. But I'm getting ahead of myself because the Bible goes on and explains Cain's line and explains how sin just grows with each generation until you get to the seventh generation in verse um, 23 and we read that Lamech, um, he has wives, right? So now we've gone from God's covenant of marriage 
to polygamy, and he's boasting to his wives about murder. So where murder before, you know, Cain made excuses for it, but he wasn't boasting about it. Now we'll brag about our murder. Sin is just deepening in how it manifests itself. But remember we saw man's sinfulness, and then God judged Cain, and we looked at that in the lesson, but God judged him. He sent him to wander. He said the ground is not going to yield to him. We see the sinfulness pervade through his line, but there is hope. Because, verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So Abel wasn't the seed. Abel was, he was a righteous man, but that wasn't where the line was coming from. The line was coming from Seth. The attack on the seed was failed. Seth is born. Seth is going to be the one that the seed comes through. And at this time, people call on the name of the Lord. So though we've seen so much sin right away, we see God's mercy confronting, right? His goodness confronting man's guilt and misery in their sin. So we're going to go now to the flood, and we're going to look quickly at chapters 5 and 6, which really set up why the flood happens. In Genesis 5, we see a phrase repeated over and over and over again. And we know when we see phrases repeated, we're supposed to pay attention to that in Scripture, right? What do we see? We see, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death is pervasive. The fall and the effects of the fall are being felt in a powerful way. It's a rapid-fire genealogy, which just means there's no breaks. It just says so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. And so Moses is just, just firing it off. And he died, and he died, and he died. But then he takes a break. He does a little parentheses. And because that's not the pattern of this, we want to take note. Why is he taking a break in this genealogy? Look with me in verse 21 of chapter 5. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and he fathered Methuselah 300, sorry, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we see right now that this pattern of, and he died, is broken, reminding us that there is life after death, and, that you, and even in the midst of all of this evil, you can know God, you can walk with him, you can love him and obey him. Enoch did. And then Enoch fathered Methuselah. And we all know Methuselah because he lived longer than anyone else, right? He's the oldest man in the Bible. But why is that significant? Why does that matter? Methuselah means after he dies, it is sent. After he dies, it is sent. Methuselah dies the year of the flood. I'm not going to walk you through all of the ways that people have calculated that, but he dies the year of the flood. And so the man who lives the longest prolongs the judgment. Do you see God's mercy in giving time for man to repent and time for man to turn to him before the flood? The length of his life is a mercy of God. And then we see that Enoch's great-grandson is Noah, right? What does, he, what does it say about Noah? Lamech, had, when Lamech had lived, we're in verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he had fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years. And then it'll tell us about Noah. Noah's name means rest, and that's going to really play out in the Noahic covenant. So in this genealogy, we see the effects of sin, we see the death, but we see hope in Enoch, and even God's mercy, you know, that there's, 
that the Methuselah lives so long, so he, God is giving more time to repent. Then in chapter 6, we see the Nephilim, right? It says, when man be, verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of on the land, and the daughters of men were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives as they chose. So the sons of men, this is a phrase almost exclusively in scripture used to refer to angels. So these are the fallen angels. They are trying to um, destroy the seed, right? If they, because angels aren't supposed to marry and procreate with women, but if they do, then maybe they can somehow corrupt the line or somehow change, because this is, it's through the woman that the seed is supposed to come. So this is another attack on the line, another attack on the seed. And what does God say as he sees this in verse 5? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Every thought and intention of the heart of man is evil. And God says, I'm going to blot you out. But we have to stop there and realize that just as they were fallen, so are we. We have a sin nature. And if we want to fight sin and we want to attack sin in our life, we have to attack it where it starts. And it starts in our thoughts, right? It starts in our heart and in our thoughts. If we want to fight sin, we have to do what Colossians 3 says, right? To set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. To set our minds on things above and not on earthly things where we died and our life is now hidden with Christ in God. And then it goes on in verse 16 and says that the word of God needs to dwell in us richly. That means it needs to be at home in our life. The word of God needs to be at home in our life, and we need to put our mind and set our mind on the things of God. And then we all are familiar in Philippians where it says, think on what is true, lovely, excellent, I'm going to get them out of order, pure, praiseworthy, just. Um, we need to think on those things. We need to take our thoughts captive. Proverbs says, as a man thinks, so he is. If we want to fight sin, we have to fight it with the word, we have to fight it through prayer, and we have to fight it where it starts, in our thought life. Then we said, then back to the text in Noah, it says God right, found, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This word means that God looked on Noah with grace. God looks on Noah with grace, and because God chooses Noah and looks on him with grace, Noah lives a certain kind of life, right? It's always because of what God does for us that we are obedient and follow God. Right? He looks on Noah with grace, and Noah follows God and obeys him. And then we're all familiar with the account of the flood and judgment. You know, God, <clears throat> excuse me, God tells Noah how to build the ark. He tells them what provisions to have. He tells them that the animals are going to come, and it took Noah 120 years. Again, God's mercy that people had all of those years to repent and all of those years to listen to the message. You know, later in the Bible, in the New Testament, it says that Enoch was a prophet, God was warning these people. Noah's building the boat was warning them. He is giving them so much time to repent. But Noah completes the ark. God shuts the door. And only Noah and his family are in the ark. They don't repent. And God sends judgment. And this judgment is an uncreating. If you think of Genesis 1-2, it says, and water covered the face of the earth. And that's what happens here. And water covers the face of the earth. The heavens pour, which there's never been rain before, and waters break forth from the deep, and literally they crush the breath of life out of man. Right? He, this judgment that is total, that is catastrophic. If you go visit the ark display, that's a little bit north of us, they have a, a little part of the display 
saying basically our culture has made the ark this really nice fun children's story and it's not it's judgment you can go it's a great display that i suggest you look at but i just I, we need to see this as devastation judgment on sin and it's important that we see this judgment because just as god judged them god will judge all sin and god is going to judge the earth again peter says in his epistle don't take the kindness of god and the patience of god right as license to sin remember the flood remember judgment is coming we will all be judged god is holy and he will judge sin so we see the sinfulness of man on the earth we see his judgment in the flood but we also see his mercy because just like this was in a sense an uncreating it's also a recreating god after the flood and the noahic covenant is going to restrain evil more than he did before it's a quantitative difference we're going to see him restraining evil and pouring more common grace so let's just look at it verse by verse turn with me in um, chapter 8 we're going to look right after noah has made the offering to the lord in verse 22 god says while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat summer and winter day and night shall not cease there are going to be seasons and seasons mean there's going to be stability and many believe that before the flood, there were not seasons. And as, as when the ground was cursed, everything became chaotic. So it would be cold one day and hot the next day. And it's really hard to grow food in that kind of a situation. But now there's going to be stability. There's still a curse, but there is a sense of a little bit of relief. I mean, we all eat, don't we? We go to the grocery store and get our food. That is a common grace that is now established in the seasons. That it's still cursed, but it's going to be easier right? Noah's name means rest. It's going to be a little easier. Then we see going down, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah is a type of Adam. You know, the first command Adam gets is to be fruitful and multiply. Now all people are going to descend from Noah and his family, right? He's the patriarch and the only people on earth, and he's telling them the same thing. God's plan hasn't changed. Man's rebellion and sin hasn't made God to go, God to go plan B, in Genesis 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply, and here we are with the flood, be fruitful and multiply. So God is giving them that same blessing. But then we see in verse 2, that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, and into your hand they are delivered. Again, before the flood, we don't think that animals had the same fear of man. Okay? Um, they, they, so imagine a world where cats are attacking you and birds are dive bombing you on the way into the grocery store. We don't know exactly how it looked, but that this didn't exist pre-flood. This is something that God is saying, now animals are going to have a fear of you. And I've never thought about it till studying this week. But I'm like, I'm really glad that when I go in my backyard, the deer run. They don't come at me because <laughs> I'm attacking. They view me as a threat. You know, it's, it, it, again, stability. Again, order. A restraining that's going to make life a little easier for man. And it's grace that God is pouring out on them. And then we go down and we see that God is going, now they're allowed to eat the animals, right? He said, I gave you the food, but now I also give you the animals to eat. But now God is also going to establish law. This is one of the first codified laws, right? Verse 6, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So unlike what happened with Cain, now if you murder, your life is required for that. So we're seeing at the beginning of the establishment of law. So all of this shows us that God is pouring grace and making the world more st stable, though the curse is still in, <laughs> it's still in full effect. We see that very quickly in how Noah and his sons behave. But God is pouring grace 
and mercy, and he's restraining evil. And then he puts his bow in the sky, right? The Noahic covenant. I'm never going to flood the earth again. I'm never going to curse the earth or the animals again because of man. But that bow, I don't know what you think of. I always think of the Care Bears because of the generation I grew up in when I think rainbow. But it's like bow and arrow, right? He put his bow and arrow, his warrior's bow that he's fighting against the world with, with the flood. He's put that in the sky to remind him that he will never judge through a flood again. But God is holy and God will judge. So... We see the flood, and then we go right into Noah's descendants, right? Because what we're really tracking is the seed. How is redemptive history going forward? And we saw how Ham dishonored his father, right? And so Ham is going to be cursed, and then Shem and Japheth are blessed, and Shem even more than Japheth. This is the first time in Scripture that a man is able to give a curse or a blessing. And curses and blessings only have power and effect if God is in them, right? If God is powering them. So Noah does this, and we see it later repeated in Isaac, and later repeated with Jacob, with their son. So it seems that there is some beginning here, one commentator said, that the direct line of the seed, and it also seems to be the head of the family at the time, is able to do this. But God is in this curse. That's what we're saying. God, even though Noah issues it, it would not have effect if God did not give it that. So verse 10 tells us how this curse kind of works out. Who become the descendants of Ham and Shem and Japheth? Where do they go? Well, Ham's sons settle in the areas and become the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and the Babylonians. So let's think of Israel's history, and they have to, in the conquest, drive out the evil Canaanites. Egypt enslaves the whole nation. Assyria takes the northern kingdom into captivity, and Babylon takes the southern kingdom into captivity. This is truly very, these nations are very anti-Israel, and we can see the curse. I just want to take a moment to say, though, that this is how God is working with the nations. This is how God is working horizontally to move his plan forward. It's not how he's working with individuals. So God still wants people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, Egypt, Assyrian, and Babylonian, to be saved and to believe in him. He still wants them to repent. He still wants them to reach for the gospel. This isn't to say we're supposed to hate them because they're cursed. This is saying that that's how God is using these nations in history. But it even says in Isaiah 19 that a remnant will be saved from Assyria and from Babylon. So the difference between how God's working with them individually and how he's working with them as a nation. We can see very directly the correlations of how, these, how Ham is going to interact with Shem's line. Then Japheth, they become the Europeans. And then Shem is where we get Semites. You might be you know, anti-Semitic. They become Israel. And this becomes the line that the seed comes through and that the blessing comes through. So as we conclude the story of the flood, we see God's man's sinfulness on the earth. Right, It was pervasive. God's judgment and holiness shown in the flood, and we see his mercy. He's preserved the line. He's blessing the line of Shem. He, even the Noahic covenant, he's bringing a measure of relief. And now we're at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, Babel is the same word as Babylon. So we could call this the Tower of Babylon. And so here at the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, we have men coming together, and we said in the lesson, what was their sin? They were supposed to, what, be fruitful and multiply and spread over the face of the earth. And they say, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay right here. And this, they were rejecting, this is their pride. We're great. We're going to make something great. We're going to make ourselves a name. There's great pride in it. And it's rejecting God. It's saying, we don't need you, God. And, and then what they're building is a statement and a symbolic of like, look, we're so powerful. We're so supreme. It, you know, the tower obviously isn't going to reach to God but it's showing that we are going to be our own ruler and do our own thing. It is, it's fighting against God. And again, I had not noticed this, but 
this is the whole world at the time. When all people are united, when everyone has one agenda, that's when you have revolution, right? That's when you have rebellion. They are revolting against God as the world. But look with me in verse 5. I, just, I love verse 5. They're doing something that's so great and so wonderful. And what does it say? And God came down, right? This is not anything lofty or great compared to God or his power. God comes down. He comes down to them. And what does he say? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their languages so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So God judges. He is holy and he judges. And before we go on to see his mercy, I just want us to pause and say, we had the question in our lesson, right? How do we see this manifest today? We all struggle with pride. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called Crazy Busy where he said pride is the sin with a thousand faces, right? Their sin is pride and rejecting God, and we are no different. And so I just, there's two books I'm going to recommend to you because we don't have time to go and talk about all the aspects of pride that we could, but um, it's $5 on Amazon. You can get Stuart Scott's From Pride to Humility. It's an excellent book on just ways pride manifests itself. It's a little pamphlet, actually. And then there's Kevin DeYoung's Crazy Busy. He lists many ways that pride manifests itself. I'm just going to give you five for consideration. When we desire power or we need to control things, that's a manifestation of pride in our life. When we lack gratitude, that means we have an attitude that I deserve this. That's a manifestation of pride in our life, a lack of gratitude. Perfectionism, need I say more? <laughs> when we think we have to be perfect, that is pride in our life. A lack of compassion. And when I read this, I just thought, man, there was, aside from the Lord, there is no compassion shown between people on these chapters, right? Where is their compassion in four or five, six? Only God's compassion toward man or the men who are walking in his ways, but pride is a lack of compassion. And then, this is a two-sided one, having an inflated view of your gifts, right? Oh, I'm so great at this. Or a focus on your lack of gifts. You can also be a form of pride. Oh, I'm just not super good at it. It's a self-focus. It's a pride that we want a certain kind of attention. So what's the answer to this? I love 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What did you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? I was joking with Betty today, and actually it's not a joke. I kind of think it, it's not, that I have the spiritual gift of repeating or regurgitation. I'm not some great like Bible scholar, I just love to listen to them and then tell people what I learned from them. And I, and I work hard to see it in scripture and be a good Berean, but I don't know Hebrew. And so I feel like I just repeat, that's my gift. I don't have anything that I haven't been given. And none of us do. Everything that we enjoy was given to us because we're all created beings, right? So get those books, study pride, but remember there's nothing that you have that you haven't been given, including people in the Tower of Babel who are shaking their face at God who is literally sustaining their breath as they do it. So God comes down, and he divides the nations. And we see he divides the languages, which creates nations, and that's his mercy, because nations are a way that God restrains evil. The next time in history that we see all the nations of the world united again 
It's in Revelation when Babylon rises and they are fighting God in the end times. As it begins in Babylon, so it finishes in Babylon. When, and so God has now divided them and that restrains evil. And it, I'm not, it, we're in a fallen world and things, no country is perfect and the way countries interact are not perfect. I'm not trying to get into that. I'm just saying we don't live in the Third Reich or a communist country. It restrains evil and, do, and puts boundaries on how far things go and how long things last. And that is God's mercy. So we saw man's sin and their rebellion. We saw God's holiness to come down and judge. And we saw his mercy in creating nations. And nations are going to be how God is going to bless the world. We'll see that next week in the Abrahamic covenant. So this nations were necessary for redemptive history to go forward because that's what he's going to do with the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to have one man rule a nation that's going to bless the world. So I'm getting ahead of ourselves, but it's setting us up for next week. As I thought about this lesson this week, and I was thinking about how we apply it to our lives and fighting sin, I was going over an old lesson that I had done in my previous Bible study, and I don't know where I got this from because I just have it jotted in the lesson, but it says, where love for Christ is lacking, compromise will soon follow. Where love for Christ is lacking, compromise will soon follow. The less love for Christ we have, the more we love the world. And we just don't see love for God on these pages, do we? We see man loving themselves and loving their own way and loving the world. If we want to resist that and not be like them, we want to be people who love Christ. And then what kept coming to my mind was the hymn, um, Grace Greater Than All Our Sins, Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord, Grace That Exceeds Our Sin and Our Guilt, Yonder on Calvary's Mount Outpoured, There Where the Blood of the Lamb Was Spilt. Grace, Grace, God's Grace, Grace That Will Pardon and Cleanse Within. Grace, Grace, God's Grace, Grace That Is Greater than all our sin. And you can look at these pages and see sin, but the grace was greater. The grace was greater. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have a plan to redeem man and to make a name for yourself. Help us to be people who want to make much of you, who want to make much of your name, and who want to walk in your ways like Noah did, like Enoch did, like Seth did. Help us, Lord, to focus on your grace and the hope that you have given the world through that. Man was sinful, but your hope and your grace is greater. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.